yeah, we were going to talk about um, merger stuff happening, like big business things that are affecting classic, you know, studios and stuff with lots of important rights and properties uh, that we have no understanding of. Yeah, unclear to me whether or not this is even an effect to movies yet, but eventually it should have some effect. Like it, um, it is, but like we just don't have the wherewithal or or understanding of corporate matters to know what the effects could even possibly be like i can't well pontificate on either of these matters really enough to say a whole lot other than i'm concerned <laughs> it seems to be about corporate tax brackets and everything as far as the hbo part goes um yeah. So, that so, stuff doesn't seem tangentially related yet. Um, if leadership leaves the company and are replaced, of course, that may eventually have a big effect on their movie making. But uh, combining with Discovery for now, un unclear what any of that means yet. Yeah, so I guess just for those who, who aren't aware, the, the two big things kind of that were announced very recently were um, AT&T is, is creating like a, a separate entity combining... Uh, the Warner Brothers and Discovery together that are somehow going to synergize more with uh, their their streaming direction of everything here uh, in kind of in light of everything that's been going on where they've been, you know, pulling back on, on Warner producing uh, lots of physical media, especially, but, you know, just their, their releases in general and how that's changing. And then the other big news was uh, Amazon uh, making a, a $9 billion offer to buy MGM still unclear if that's happening right yeah no that's it's just rumors, an, that's just right? an offer it's not it's not rumored that's it's that's an actual offer they made okay. yeah that's 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 actually happening but it's only a matter of an offer it's not like this has definitely happened yet but this well is, and, can, can, and gm wants to sell yeah. so that they'll probably sell to someone yeah and and since we know we got a pretty concrete offer out there that's uh obviously a thing and uh that that one feels more bad like i don't feel as good about that one but also it uh, i read somewhere uh that someone point out that a lot of mgm's library like pre-19 you know uh 1960s and such i think even actually pre-80s uh, except for like a lot of like the bond stuff and all that is actually owned by warner brothers they sold oh. their the rights to the library so <laughs> And, and Warner also has like the almost all of the like the RKO library and mm -hmm. a, and a bunch of stuff. Um, like the the rights are not all where exactly you'd think they'd be because they've been shuffled around so many times over the course of history. So, so we're thinking about corporate tax brackets to start our show. <laughs> Is this the direction <laughs> the show's going? Um, it's just it's an important thing to talk about. Maybe um, you know I, this this it whole will podcast. Be, I think. I like to think that this podcast is going to be an important piece of posterity down the road, less for our, you know, intrigue and critical aspects and more just like the little bits of commentary we had on events going on. So like some biographer is going to be going through the, the history of the, the 2010s film industry by listening to podcasts like ours and, and picking up on what people thought at the time. Meanwhile, so, I'm just watching playoff hockey and paying no attention to movies. <laughs> so I have no idea what's going on. Um, I know movies are coming out again. Yeah. Uh, movies are happening now that um, theaters are opening and people are getting vaccinated or at least saying they're getting vaccinated. Right. Uh, there's been a whole slew of them coming out from like a 
that Angelina Jolie movie nobody knows about. Um, I, don't, I don't know about it. It's an HBO movie. I haven't seen it. That's uh, that's part of the problem as well, is that so many movies are coming out on like streaming services right now and such, most of which I don't own. So yeah. I don't know about these movies, like everything that's coming to, to HBO or, or Apple or whatever. And and part of the problem as well is that if, if a movie gets announced, I'm like, oh, that sounds exciting. It's like, oh, only streaming on Apple. I'm like, oh, all right. Yeah, <laughs> it's potentially exciting if it's like Scorsese's doing Apple. Um, I'd sign up for a month. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. There's... You wouldn't even sign up for a month for a new Scorsese. What would it take, I guess? I might, but question. I could also just wait till they release it on Criterion like a year later and buy True. it or rent it. Maybe if they did that, I don't well, know. I'll go to theater for Scorsese. Who am I? Yeah, kidding? yeah. That's the thing is, I'd love to go to a, a theater. That's part of the experience. I don't know. Again, I'm I'm very averse to just everything going straight to streaming networks, and I have to be subscribed to a bunch of different ones. It's like, can you imagine if we did this in the time of like cable, where like you know big films that were being hyped up for years were released on specific <laughs> channels that you had to like contact a provider to to get, and you're just you're you're paying out for just this one thing. That's still how it feels too. It feels like people see these movies once and then they just kind of fade into the background without that theatrical release and the buzz of that marketing. Um, something's livelihood on netflix is very questionable to me since they put out a new movie every week um it is kind of flavor of the week yeah and it's uh, it's just not enough for me to like keep keep up interest in like i i don't think once yet i've subscribed to a service just to watch a single movie like nothing has got me excited enough yet to sign up for anything even something like hbo which has yeah so much they, they, they have like so much other stuff as well particularly like with the partnership with tcm that would appeal to me that but but still they've not generated anything new enough for me to be interested and part of that i think is also just a problem of advertising is that i don't know what's out there i don't know what's right. that what they have exactly that would entice me what is exclusive to like HBO. I got, I mean, I saw Judas, which was, uh, yeah. you know, Judas Black Messiah, which was an HBO exclusive, but I, I got that through a screener. I didn't have to sign up for HBO. Yeah. And that's another thing is that we're privileged not to have to, I guess. No. You yeah. don't have to sign up for Shudder to do that new movie. And I don't have to sign up for Netflix to watch any of theirs. So we which have is advantage. Very, very nice. Uh, thank you, Calvin, for, for creating that opportunity for us. Of course, uh, of course. Um, sorry to the listeners out there who have to pay to watch movies. But uh, we're sitting on our throne saying we really don't have to. And yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, let's talk more about tax brackets. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, we do sound privileged as fuck this week, don't we? <laughs> How do you feel about uh, the Saw franchise? Both as a whole and as an opportunity for Chris Rock to make a comedy. <laughs> Well, that latter part is uh, interesting and unexpected. But uh, first, uh, to tackle the soft franchise as a whole, I am indifferent to a franchise. But I like the first movie. The first movie is quite good still. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think I saw any of the sequels because I, I understood by reputation that it just it wasn't worth in, you know going after. It wasn't going to be my thing. The second movie, um, done by the same director who did three, and I think, six and this new spiral the second movie really set the course for what would become saw in that it was 
becoming more of a police procedural. It was about police going and investigating the crime scene. It had a second layer to it that made sense. Um, this director came from music videos and you could really tell he loves like his Dutch angles, but he'll have like a Dutch angle and spiral. Then he'll go to a normal shot. Then you'll go back to the hallway where the Dutch angle was, but it'll be normal angle again. <laughs> He's very inconsistent and imprecise. To me, this just feels like Chris Rock went into Lionsgate and said, I want to make a Saw movie. Here's what it is. And then they made that movie. Did, did uh, he actually do that? Like, yeah. did he like spearhead this? Yeah, he did. He's that's, one of the producers. He went in and uh, begged for the movie to be made. I admire that. That's really interesting, particularly because like the last one was kind of like a death knell or like kind of capped off the series i remember that happened and then where the hell does spirals even come from like that's uh, i don't i guess because like it's 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 like a visual motif of the saw series like kind of yeah like you think of a you think of a saw going in a circular or a spiral like you know you could see what they're going for but jigsaw's dead so there's yeah. a new uh, spiral killer and that's the thing he goes by the spiral. He leaves spirals on people. It's about uh, <laughs> you read my review, and I think you were I, I uh, flabbergasted by yeah. uh, his yeah, motives. Yeah, so <laughs> I I was editing the review as I usually do, and I had to stop pretty early in because I was just dumbstruck by by the <laughs> direction they decided to go in, and so much so that I have to ask, even after having edited it and published it on the site here, I have to ask for clarification to know this is real the angle of the new Saw movie is that the killer is advocating police reform. That's correct. He wants to reform one precinct of the police in New York. Uh-huh. This is, this is a, a real direction a horror franchise is deciding to go in. <laughs> Very brave of them. In this current political atmosphere. Yes. Sort that, of... That, that seems pretty on the money. No no tone deafness there at all. No. Um, and especially to make the movie about cops and have it be like, okay, there's a few bad apples. You just got to clean out the system, drain the swamp, as uh, as my friends say. <laughs> our, our friends at the alt-right. <laughs> <laughs> our, our cousins to our alternative to the right. Uh, yeah, so this seems like um, obviously a very bad idea. Uh just just from conception there um like the saw series is not political in nature even going back to the oh it is it is i'd say uh, uh, it, i'd say it's very political uh, uh, <laughs> i i think it's all about moralizing and punishing people for their crimes because uh, it's about testing them and finding out if they have the will to live um and about correcting people who have really fucked up but it's See, it's that, about as political as batman is right well i was going to say that sounds less like uh politicizing to me and more like moral fanaticism like yeah, and, and because moral a certain, crusader a certain kind of branch thing. of our politics right now is very informed by moral outrage and fanaticism that doesn't mean that those two things are inherently political you know they've just they've capitalized on moral fanaticism to kind of boost their uh, their voice in the political landscape. I'd say it always had undertones. It never really fully went there. It still doesn't really go there, by the way. I wouldn't yeah. say this is an honest attempt at politically radical Saw movie. Making. Well, no, because what I was going to say is ultimately the Saw franchise are, as as our good friend Martin Scorsese would say, roller coaster rides. They're, yeah. they're, 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 they're theme, theme park, park attractions. attractions. Yeah. yeah, 
Bingo, exactly. Uh, like, because the the first film was very much not the case, but what really resonated with people were these kind of intricate traps and the game aspect of it, and and the kind of puzzle, like kind of finding your way out and everything. And then the sequel is just like they took that and just threw everything else out and ran whole hog with it. And it was kind of a time where franchise horror was going away and fading from the landscape. So to have something like Saw that came out every October. I think for seven straight, seven, eight straight years, it came out every October. Uh, and for this to launch just middle of May, <laughs> May to streaming services and theater, it is our number one movie in the box office this week. So it is doing well. It, it is also weird. To, out. It's weird but, to release it this time of year. Yeah. Yeah. It's very <laughs> strange. But because it's a police procedural, it barely needs it. Um, it barely plays into the saw things. Of course, you have people on like those. Uh, those traps that seem like systems of mechanics working against them um, an office officers being held by his tongue and he has to either uh, jump down from his stool and cut off his tongue and live the rest of his life. Cause he's such a liar. They have to take out his tongue. That's the kind of symbolism saw cares about, or he could be ran through by a train. So he chooses to die by a train. Uh, that's the first scene of the movie. Um, but then there's a lot of stuff like that. And then there's, this weird other thing going on with Chris Rock. He shows up and he's critiquing Forrest Gump, which I, which I had a laugh about because he was kind of reliving our podcast the first five minutes on his <laughs> part of the movie. But he, he was a police officer and he invaded this troop doing a robbery. He took part in it, but he was complaining about how there could be no Forrest Gump too um, because he, he died from. What, 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 a, what a bizarre non sequitur. Yeah, film. like that, that. I think that would feel out of place, even in a Chris Rock stand-up special. I think it worked. <laughs> it's one part that worked for me. Uh, I was I was dying laughing just because we had done the Forrest Gump. Right, thing. right. Well, I think that more you know related to the circumstance of ha- us having just done it and probably said a lot of the same things. He really gives them a lot of shit about Jenny and her only coming to him once you know she's tried everything else in the world. And it's it's a good Chris Rock bit, but I don't know if it's a saw bit. I don't know why it would introduce his character, except like he's this roguish cop that's not going to play by the rules, and he's out there on this investigation he shouldn't be on. Telling are, are, are the jokes. rules that you can't critique Forrest Gump? I didn't realize that was like a code of conduct thing. Uh, it should it shouldn't be. Uh, everyone should freely critique Forrest Gump. We have. <laughs> See, I will say in light of the other like saw films i always have at least respected them in some manner because i don't think they were ever anything more than what they intended to be like and and the people who enjoyed them they didn't treat them as something more than they were they were these fun kind of like trashy you know you know spectacly blockbuster films that you went and saw you know during a seasonal time of the year sometimes you marathon them and you can kind of get behind the vibe of it but they weren't like I don't even know that people really regarded them as movies so much, you know? Well, they're, they're so like... interconnected and they're episodic and they're like Marvel in a way. They came before Marvel and did that thing. They came yeah. before Marvel movies and did the, that kind the, of thing of interconnected universe building. The difference is, is that nobody ever tried to, you know, declaim a, a lauded filmmaker over, you know, commenting on the Saw franchise. <laughs> Maybe they should. Uh, who would comment on the? I think Chris Rock was the only person interested in reviving it, though. So I don't know. Yeah, it's a very, very odd thing as well. Like, 
I don't know. It's un- unexpected. Chris Rock wanted to revive the Saw franchise. Okay. <laughs> and it's weird because Chris Rock might have a little bit more leverage than we're used to from a Saw character actor. Um, he might be more of an actor, more of a comedian, more of a presence than we really need in one of those movies. And because Samuel Jackson's his dad, it's a little bit also like, a, why are these actors showing up for this? Is it is it a favor to him? Is this just a fun side project? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, and if you go and look at the film that way, then I guess it's not the worst thing. Like, you know, it's <laughs> no, just, you know, again, like, like people having fun making a movie, you know, not everything has to be art. That's cool. But also don't put like themes of police reform in your fucking saw movie the police have always been a part of this guy's movies that he's made so yeah but he's... don't put like modern political commentary <laughs> into your fucking saw reboot film well i agree are you uh, God, it's just it's so asinine <laughs> and assuming there's one good cop and that fleshing out the bad ones fixes a systemic problem is really problematic it's doing it's doing more damage by talking yeah. about it just just ignore it make your dumb saw movie <laughs> that everyone's going to enjoy and turn the brain offs to you don't need to inject it with some kind of social relevance people aren't going to go see your fucking saw reboot movie because you address you know systemic police issues in it like it's not going to be <laughs> that's, that's not, not why right. that's not I, why you went and saw it. that's the thing that's the i might have skipped out i might have skipped out on it if i knew that that was really what was happening here. exactly yeah and as you probably well should <laughs> there's a very touching scene between samuel jackson and chris rock I had fun. It's a dumb movie. I, I had fun. I like horror movies. Yeah, well, it's it's good. Again, like there's there's definitely a distinction we can make between movies we enjoy <laughs> and movies that are good. There, it's it's not a circle. It's a Venn diagram. Yeah. Um, and saws somewhere like on the just the outer skirts of my Venn diagram of horror that I enjoy, and it's still bad, but there's something there. Do you, do you rewatch any of the sequels? Do you ever get the desire to go back and? and check them out yeah i think i've seen up to three i think i've I've researched all of them but i i think i stopped at three going to the theater i I saw jigsaw uh, maybe for this next halloween we can convince jesse to do a whole breakdown of the saw series now that he's done halloween i wonder if he'd be interested (laughs) i have a feeling not but maybe we can incentivize him i guess we should look at something with the I guess politics and representation that lands a lot better than saw. Um, Barry Jenkins has a, we've been debating all day if it's a 10 hour movie or a TV show, but ultimately he's created a 10 hour work of art. That's really high impact and adapts Colson Whitehead's uh, 2016 Pulitzer winning novel, the underground railroad to the screen, which seems very difficult to adapt, but it's stunning. It looks just as good as moonlight. I'm in love with it. So I'm I'm very interested by this because everything I keep hearing from you about it makes me more confused and intrigued at the same time. So, <laughs> so it's it's a series. It's a, yes. it's a ten episodes. Yeah. I don't want to throw you off with all of that. Uh, okay, okay. I, I'm just I'm, I'm going to ask some clarifying questions. It's here. a TV show. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it's a TV show. It's on Amazon, mm. and it's ten episodes. That's right. About an hour long each, and they are only slightly connected through the concept of 
the the underground railroad no they're they're very connected but they they stand alone as in you could watch one and then leave it for a few weeks and come back and not miss anything so so it is it isn't interconnected it is interconnected by the railroad yes okay so so are, are events in each episode affecting other ones or is it just like it's it's like the railroad is like the overarching connective tissue between them all and these are disparate stories you know that that are all kind of touched on within that setting it's very interesting it starts like in a georgia plantation and you you get to experience the true like horrors and brutality of slavery like a guy's getting whipped to death and then burned alive on the screen and it just fucking shows you it like it's it's mesmerizing and horrifying but at the end of each episode there's this like magical realism that comes in and it makes it feel I wouldn't say safer, but it feels like an established universe where the railroad will connect them to another part of America. So we start in Georgia, and then by the end of the episode, they like fall down this trap and get to the railroad. That brings them up to the Carolinas. So uh, Barry Jenkins has said he's given order on Twitter for like which to watch these. So mm-hmm. There is like, okay, you watch the first one, take a few weeks off, then you watch the Carolinas. So, so it does feel like the Carolinas could be like their own like self-included work, right? Whereas Georgia really stand on on its own, but it's still following Cora, the slave who's escaped, and it's still following this uh, slave hunter who's after her. So, so um, she's in. So, so those two are in the series. Throughout. Yeah, yeah, okay. throughout. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, that sounds more like a consistent thread that may sound earlier. Uh, it's not then just like as as episodic as someone might say. No. Um. So. My other question then comes to the actual <laughs> Underground Railroad, because my understanding is that it's like a, a fantastical, like real Underground Railroad. Like that's that's part of the hook here. Is that I, right? I think in the book it's used like for engagement and in the film it's used as magic realism. Um, so, I, but, I but it's like it's like, like a, a it's like a literal railroad. That's right. Yeah, there's a train as opposed to and for those who don't know, because I'm sure there are some people out there listening. The Underground Railroad was not a real railroad. No, it was connected passages. It, it was it was a metaphorical like system of people throughout right. the South who who you who would harbor escaped slaves and to help them you know move up north. Like there were no trains that that Harriet Tubman was conducting or anything like that. The, no, just in case anyone didn't know. I mean, it's handled with such like deaf magical realism touch that you you know it feels real in the world enough but also there's like something off about it and uh, even at the plantations um there's something off with every white character that it doesn't do anything to moralize or excuse any of their sins um mm-hmm. there is a lot of horror to it and there's an otherworldliness about all of the plantations and everywhere they go when they go up to the carolinas it feels like, oh, this is like a utopia. They, they have like this uh, bar where the black man's working there and making money and, you know, selling tonics and stuff. And the other black man goes in and and he gets like the, you know, scrub for his beard. They, they have like specialized product for black men there. And but then there's like this huge racist undertone there too. the white men basically <laughs> like slave drivers at their work site. And it feels like there's always like this tinge of offness and everyone who's white is still enacting the same role. So even though they're technically free up North, um, they're, you know, they're still profoundly not a part of that society. They're still outsiders. If you're a slave coming in, you're still not allowed there. So if you're a slave below, then 
you're enslaved obviously and then you go up and you're not allowed there either so there's like this weird middle ground where there's uh you know black people living there but it's a culture that doesn't accept and isn't inclusive to black people coming in um there's a weird bit in the carolinas that's like a rosemary's baby shit where uh Cora's going in and it's like a weird dreamscape and she's slashing people's throats and then she gets a baby and it's taken from the mother like a rosemary's baby whore thing it's it's so many things at once that uh i think the magical realism and the um historical fiction makes it really interesting and takes it beyond the book like colson whitehead of course one of our best authors he's won two pulitzer prizes which only four authors ever have so he also won for the Nickel Boys two years ago. Really fantastic book. Well, it's good to hear that it handles the magical realism part well, because that was definitely like a concern when I first it's, heard about that. It's barely in there. I'd say it's only at the end as a connective tissue between places. So you could imagine it like a dark movement toward the next place, like a symbolic gesture uh, to lead into the credits where Cora uh, can relocate and go to the next territory. Interesting. So... And just just also to clarify and understand about the book as well. The book is also fictitious in the same way, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. the whole premise. Well, I think I think Colson Whitehead started. I think he wrote about like Abraham Lincoln and zombies, or like one of those weird like magical <laughs> fantasy books before he became like this huge award winning, uh, you know, literature author who's respected world over. Uh, I mean, he That's he started with fantasy and then combined it with history. And oh, okay, um, so so the book is also has that element of fantastic oh yeah it's know, all right out of the book but i think the movie handles or the show handles it so much better okay i'm very tempted to keep calling it movie <laughs> it well, feels yeah. like a movie to me so. well and, and that's kind of where the place we are we, and we have been for some time in terms of like uh t- television becoming more movie-like over time and um, uh, movies becoming more television-like as it happens yeah like the the line between the two it's it's more so about presentation and and runtime and structure than it is about like like quality or process of uh you know uh, making like the actual filmmaking process that goes into producing uh, either of them it's again it's, it's more so in the in the conceit of its uh delivery than it is in yeah, its execution agree. something about between um small acts and this i feel like are moving movies and tv toward you know, a more connected level of prestige. Like that is an anthology uh, series of films, of course. And this is a, a TV show with the same quality as Moonlight and in, in Bill Street, um, if Bill Street could talk. So I feel like I love all those movies and I'm very happy with the where black storytelling in America is going to. I feel like that's really profound and on the rise. If everything else is going badly, our representation and ability to get new voices heard is really flourishing. So. Yeah, certainly the case. I think uh, the, those uh, have been the most interesting projects of late to, to come out. And so and I'm that, only through uh, Georgia and the Carolinas. I'll be checking back again once I finish the show too. So it's, it's like three episodes? Yeah, yeah. It, he he advised long breaks between them so uh, i i believe in it it's it's heavy and and it's tough so uh i'm feeling the need for the breaks well that sounds good I'm, I'm glad to hear about that and and more in the future as well yeah it could be very likely going to be my show of the year we'll see if lord of the rings or something is, is, that, really is good. that still happening yeah yeah that's the end of the is year is it even in production yet i haven't heard yeah. much about it. okay they said they said pretty much everyone who has Amazon needs to watch it for them to make a, a profit off it. So 
pretty much everyone in the world has to watch wow. this TV we'll see. event. We'll see. It'll be uh, interesting for sure. You got some other new stuff to talk about, though, right? Do I? Um, Psycho Gorman, which yeah. is a new Shutter movie. I. Uh, how do you feel about Power Rangers? Uh, it's it's been a while since I've seen any. Okay, so you're not going to be like the Power Rangers expert in this conversation or anything. Uh, I'm I might be depending on your knowledge, I guess. Well, you know how like they have like the kaiju bad guys, and they have like that whole Power Rangers aesthetic that feels like borrowed from Japanese like Ultraman and all of that. Um, I don't know the I don't quite know the words for these things. I'm definitely not the Power Ranger expert. Mm-hmm. but they do have a certain aesthetic of bad guy that comes through in Power Rangers as though it's lifted from a super fantastical kaiju thing. And for Psycho Gorman, it plays into that uh, with the respect of a, a horror movie that uh, has come from the 80s as though it's like Toxic Avenger mixed with Power Ranger, which very fun for me. I, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, I enjoy the little kids taking over this uh, devilish creature, just their parents' complete surprise and uh, just the reckless abandon of the creature. And um, it's it's really difficult to define the movie and really put it into a box of all the things that really is. Uh, but but I had a ton of fun with it. Very funny and a useful horror for me because I love a practical effect horror. Yeah, I'm looking over the pictures now and it looks fantastic, particularly from like the creature design of everything and the, the costuming and all that. It looks really brilliant uh, particularly for a film which is, seems to be fairly independently produced yeah um, um I, I, and i have heard some about it before i've heard people compare it to like a kind of more horror centric like et yeah <laughs> sure <laughs> which is, is i haven't thought of it <laughs> yeah where i guess like the the kids are like be- befriend this uh extraterrestrial uh but it'd be more like if he's like a world conquering murderer <laughs> yeah and yeah and the the, the character of, of psycho gorman here looks looks absolutely terrific in the the costuming and everything I'm, it, it looks very appealing uh in in that kind of 80s horror way like you said it, it looked like it's got that appeal particularly with the, the kid angle and everything i kind of loved it i i love the practical effects and the gore of it and i love just the whole character of him um i i think he has a lot of good jokes written around him i He's clever, and how he plays with the kids is clever. And the kids are annoying; they they seem well well above their pay grade for what they're doing, especially the young girl. Uh, even playing badly toward like uh, horror stereotypes can be difficult to do it without it seeming, um, I don't know, manipulative of the children or or like they're uh, miscast in the wrong movie. But I think everything really works here in a way that I'm really endeared toward. I I'll be writing more in depth about it. Uh, and finding the right words to use about Power Rangers and all of this. <laughs> um, but there is something about that aesthetic that appealed to me, like that Ultraman Power Ranger thing and that fight against evil, like these monsters coming out of the ground and uh, this force of nature suiting up. And uh, there's something about that, that that is aesthetically part of Psycho Gorman too. Mm-hmm. That sounds interesting. So I guess if, uh, if you have Shudder, check it out and look forward to Kevin's yeah. review on that too. I loved it, but it's it's very difficult to describe just on podcasts. I, I think I'll do it more justice in review. Yeah, when you can sit down and, and plunk out the actual words that are <laughs> best fit. And it, it does need some thought. Um, uh, Psycho Gorman, I think it's so many things. And it's very special. I do hope people check it out. Cool. If you're going to like it, I think you know you'll like it. I mean, if you love those practical effects and weird 80s movies 
and you know that toxic avenger brand i i think you'll i think you'll find something here so so the bergman fans probably not as much <laughs> uh possibly them too i, I can't <laughs> say for sure all right well I, I think it's time for my my documentary discourse is it not oh yeah all right so uh this week actually uh I don't have a documentary. It's not, it's no, not you a don't. Documentary. No, <laughs> a I, bait and switch. Yeah, uh, it's it's kind of like I'm I'm gonna use the slot to talk about something else that wouldn't usually fit in like a, a normal movie category, but it's also definitely not a documentary. I thought you were going with my technique. This isn't a documentary. It's a movie, like <laughs> Underground Railroad style. No, no, not not quite like that. It's not a TV thing. It's a probably it's it's an art film. It's an art film. Oh. And you, you probably know what I'm going to say because you know what I watch, but uh, and and, you, and you've seen it too, so I'm, I've been kind of excited to talk to you about it. Uh, Calvin, do you, do you want to tell me what you think about the Green Fog? The Green Fog. So that's the Hitchcock, uh, Hitchcock a composite that um, Guy Madden made, right? That's the yeah. I, I reviewed it a couple of years ago. I can't remember if Film Fest or if that was a press thing, but it was. I, I think it might have been a press thing. Okay, when you got it, but. Yeah, it's on the Criterion channel right now, which oh, is prob- probably one of the only ways you're going to get to see it because there's just no practical way to to release the film because it's it's a it's a composite of a bunch of different things, yeah. movies, shows, like, you know, uh news stuff or whatever, like shot in San Francisco molded around the basic plot structure of vertigo so it's like all these shots that vertigo influenced from just like a cavalcade of movies i think i wrote them all down at the end a couple years ago when i got there it it was nice at the end they 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 throw up all the title cards (laughs) and so you could kind of point out like oh i didn't even realize that was like a quick shot from that or whatever or then there's like obvious ones where they take like the end of invasion of the body snatchers and they (laughs) they have that in the film it's like okay yeah you know how, how could you miss that one definitely go with that and it's also like San Francisco under like a green fog and like a aesthetic, right? Like it- yeah, there's there's like a there's an interesting like framing device involving these like guys in a, in a room watching the the film, but also yeah. there's a there's a literal like green fog inserted over the footage that's kind of seeping its way into the city. And I'm like, hmm, hmm what what does what does this mean? Is this like the influence of of vertigo or the city it has on on media kind of seeping into everything it's hard to say because the film doesn't have any concrete answers which is no. which is part of what makes it great because it's definitely more like a kind of mood and, and visual thing that you're meant to take away and 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 you're supposed to feel it out for yourself but it's 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 quite esoteric. I think Guy Madden said that he didn't know what it meant. So if someone could go and find out, that would be great. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think there's like a practical intention there or something that you could possibly receive from well, it all. I, it was it was he conceived, doesn't have the answer. It was I mean. conceived for like a, a, a San Francisco film festival, I think. Right. And yeah, it feels like an installation work, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like yeah. it's for a festival for sure. It, and it was meant as this kind of love letter to the city. And they found the idea of vertigo, at, like, like kind of in the process of doing it. Like if they didn't set out with that intention of duplicating Hitchcock. That was kind of just the structure they landed upon. Uh, and, and it's a really good one, I think, uh, especially because as of recently, vertigo has become even more of a kind of 
significant cinematic staple, you know, than than it was uh, like twenty years ago or or, or whatnot. Um, and as an emblem of the city of San Francisco, it's probably the 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 greatest, the most shining one. Uh, though obviously, with all the examples there, you can see some significant ones like like Bullet. You know, is obviously a, a big San Francisco movie as well in there. I think the really great idea about the green fog is that like the city and like the aspect that's heavily filmed in a location is never just the film itself, but it's like a whole history of things that have film, been filmed there. Yeah. We have such strong cinematic history of San Francisco. These things can't help but influence and inform each other. There are some really great scenes that I love that. Cause it's not just like a history of films in San Francisco. Like yeah. I said, it's a history of San Francisco. Like you see these shots where I think there's one point they're showing this big, uh, you know, ch- church that they have like in the middle of the city or, or whatnot. And then like they cut from one shot of it to like in, in, in a more contemporary color footage to like a black and white shot from earlier. And it's uh, you know, like when there's being like construction done on it or, you know, there's repairs or something going on. It's like, Oh, you can literally see like the evolution of the city through the footage here. You know, that's yeah. why it's kind of an interesting document of that. And it goes back, like there are films in there that predate vertigo up to some silent films. I believe that, that I saw in there were kind of significant and you see all the way up to more contemporary films uh you know like in i think in like 2016 when they were making it you know they, they've got some footage from films there and guy madden one of my favorite esoteric directors because of my winnipeg which is a beautiful tone poem of a place so, uh he's really able to capture a sense of place i think you'd i think you'd like some of his others as well i check out like shorts like a stump the guesser which is like a soviet era um silent film throwback very interesting work we have to see certainly i mean if the guy can make me enjoy a movie entirely you know uh considered on making san francisco look appealing (laughs) which san francisco it's a big hill so you're naturally against it i'm uh, historically historically (laughs) i've taken a firm stance against san francisco and all it represents so the fact that I enjoyed this movie and wanted to talk about it is a testament to Guy Madden's ability to to make great art. What a hill you've chosen to die on. <laughs> it's a big fucking hill. Yeah, I'll tell is. you what. <laughs> well, should we take a short break? Come back yes. with the Grapes of Wrath? All right. The Grapes of Wrath indeed. Well, maybe it's like Casey says. Fella ain't got a soul of his own, just little piece of a big soul the one big soul that belongs to everybody then then what Tom? then it don't matter i'll be all around in the dark i'll be everywhere wherever you can look wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat i'll be there wherever there's a cop beating up a guy I'll be there. I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build, I'll be there too. I don't understand it, Tom. 
Me neither, Ma, but just something I've been thinking about. Hold All on, right. let, me, let me open this drink first. Okay. Make sure you cut all this part out, actually, for real this time. What are you drinking? Uh, ginger peach. Oh. Yeah. Would have been better if it were grape-flavored, eh? <laughs> there we go. What are the Grapes of Wrath, anyway? What's the title mean? What are the Grapes of Wrath? Yeah. It's a big question. <laughs> Damn, damn you, John Steinbeck, and your weird metaphoric titles. What are the mice and men? Yeah, well, I think that was a little more clear, but yeah, the grape. Yeah, well, well I guess the grapes of wrath is. It, it, I mean, that's not Steinbeck. He he's evoking. Um, it's like uh, the 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 song by right. that the the American song. Uh, glory, glory, hallelujah! It's it's by. Some composer, not Francis Scott Key, but someone. Definitely by a composer. <laughs> my, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. That, that one. Okay. Uh, he's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. That's that's the lyric he's evoking there. It's a it's a military song, patriotic tune, and he's evoking something about America. This is a movie about America. It is. It's a, one, one of the great movies about America, I would say, by one of the great American movie directors. What do you think Graves of Wrath means to John Ford? It's, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the Grapes of Wrath uh, as a concept is this idea taken from that not Francis Scott Key song. <laughs> um, it evokes a kind of enduring spirit of American fortitude, which is something that pervades all of his films. Um, you know, this this idea of tramp, trampling through, you know, very hard circumstances, you know, coming out on on top and persis, uh, persisting through. Yeah, yeah. Pers yeah, this this idea of uh, American perseverance and fortitude through the, the worst of conditions uh, and you know, particularly in this case, the uh, economic devastation of the Great Depression and the, uh, you know, uh, environmental desolation of the uh, the Dust Bowls pushing the, the Okies and others in uh, Middle America there to uh, move westward in hopes of uh, prosperity, which also echo other, you know, similar pioneering themes of Ford's films, which, you know, is why he was such a great choice for a director for this particular project and john ford longtime famed uh gop members so i think what people <laughs> often get wrong is that that party was entirely different for one back well, then and well, secondly he was always pro-union and he always believed in like workers rights and people's ability to work so. so so it's one of those cases i think where people don't know that uh john ford was was a progressive and a democrat at, at this time was he really? Uh, I thought yeah. he was always GOP. No, no. I thought it was came. just a different party and he just stuck with it. No. no the, Why the, the fuck the, would he change then? Well, <laughs> people, so, so 
alliances change people change okay. over yeah, time yeah, yeah. things have this is also remember this is like a that's mystifying huge, this is a huge turning point in in american political history here this is right at the time where fdr takes office and like really turns the country around like and this is where the democratic party takes a huge shift towards the left like yeah FDR really changes things for the party and and the right uh is forced to to embrace a a more conservative angle because of it I think as Ebert noted in his review for this it's the one time that we were comfortable to accept socialism on a national scale because of the Nazis this is also this is also prior to Ford entering and taking part in the war which certainly shaped a lot of his political ideology afterwards um you know, and, and so there's a lot that changes in this time period. But yeah, people don't uh, necessarily know that because of his reputation more so for a, a more hard. I mean, I never thought that. Yeah, I still had the wrong information. I was still told that he was GOP lifelong and that they just changed. Yeah, he was this is news to me. Yep. He, he was not always the case. And this was definitely he was very sympathetic to, uh, you know, the, the issues of the people, you know, this day. At this time, and, and actively sought out this project from uh, Daryl Zanuck. I think uh, that make... I thought it was just like the studio had it assigned, and then they sought him out. Is no, that not correct? no. Well, because so much Zan- misinformation about this out there. <laughs> there well, there, there's just a lot of things. So, so Zanuck was he was a big producer at 20th Century Fox, right? You know, and ahead. So, like Fox made lots of films, obviously, but Zanuck had particular films he sought out, and Zanuck bought the film rights to Grapes of Wrath essentially immediately like everyone was clamoring for the the film rights for Steinbeck's novel which was sweeping the country making big waves it's it's very controversial at the time but also like the most read book have you read the book maybe when i was in high school (laughs) i feel like Uh, everyone had to i don't know if you did but i i definitely should have i read of mice and men for sure i recall that Uh. I, i don't know if i read grapes of wrath though grapes of wrath pretty okay as a book i I, I don't love Mice and Men either, but it, I like East of Eden. I like some of his uh, shorter ones. Uh, weirdly, like Travels with Charlie is very endearing to me. I like travel books with dogs. I was, I was I hoping you'd be able to bring more of the kind of literary wherewithal <laughs> to this podcast, because uh, even though I put in a lot of research work when I wrote about Grapes of Wrath last year, last year, yeah. um, I obviously, again, I didn't read the book, so. <laughs> oh, I'll have some important notes at the end about what Steinbeck did and then what Ford did instead. So. There, there's some changes, I know, particularly like some structural changes that were intentional to kind of uh, leave a more optimistic note for the film. Yeah, uh, I don't I think... think they would have done what's in the book. Should I just say it? Should, should I say what's at the end uh, of the book? May, may, maybe we'll save it. Let's let's talk about the movie, uh, then we'll get, get to the okay. changes. I know, I know, but. It's, uh, it's good. Uh, so it's a good reason to keep listening. Yeah. So this was your first time watching the film, though. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, I, which, I haven't read it either since like high school. So it's been like, what, 20 years, 15 years, mm-hmm. 10 and, years. I think it's interesting because not, not only is this a big film for Ford, who we're both a, a huge fan of, but it's just it's one of the kind of big, indelible American classics that yeah. you, you learn about very early on. So you almost have to intentionally avoid it. You do. Um, I, I think even if you've avoided it, something about the Grapes of Wrath story has seeped its way into our culture and become a defining characteristic, both of our country and the landscape of uh, traveling movies and these kind of movies that are uh, socialist documents of like this place and time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, I think, not only that, a very important and 
moving and oh, it's uh, beautiful, e- yeah. eternal film, I would say as well. Uh, I think it's it's absolutely in, enrapturing and its themes resonate beyond its, its kind of uh, mid-1930s setting. I'd say the first half of the movie is the book. I'd say it's very, very true. Yeah. And, the whole uh, the, first half is basically the book. From my understanding, the book as well was kind of compiled after John Steinbeck uh, went to a bunch of these migratory camps and right. wrote a bunch yeah. of like critical essays on them and kind of compiled all of the horrors and destitution he saw into this this document. So the, the novel <laughs> itself was kind of semi like like kind of like an expose essentially in a lot of ways. Uh, essentially it's easy writer for its time. <laughs> i guess <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the book a lot more family members though uh, even in the beginning the, there's, there's, there's a lot of family characters. members to start yes yeah. <laughs> it's interesting and it also makes sense to cut down on you know there's too many I, the book is very unfocused for me so i think the movie gets just the right amount it gets the right ones to the right characters in so. right and it also it, it boots out characters it doesn't need after you know pretty pretty quickly we go through some yeah. characters pretty fast but there's uh, a shuffle you 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 don't feel like we like like getting rid of them is a burden like it, it feels like like when when certain characters uh die it's it's very heartbreaking i, oh, yeah. I have to say and, and in the ways in which like just taking it all in uh, uh, it's it's a film that just like wrecks wrecks me emotionally, but one that I find so enchanting at the same time and so mesmerizing. Yeah, let's be more let's be more detailed though. So it starts off, I think, in a, in a really terrific way because, like, and and it's it's just this kind of endless parade of going through all the destitution, but also like being very endeared by the characters, by their plight, by their struggle. And there's a sense of optimism that Ford never abandons. I think that buoys the film throughout um, that otherwise it would just feel like a parade of misery porn and that would not be satisfying. <laughs> well, they but, could have shown up to California and nothing was there, right? I mean, they mm-hmm. could have gone all the way West and nothing. But um, so it starts off with Henry Fonda as Tom Jode uh, getting out of jail. He's, he's released on parole having killed someone in self-defense and he he comes home and nobody's there it, the, the whole state is basically abandoned uh, except for a few couple people hanging around namely a a, a preacher who's lost the faith named uh, casey uh and they also and he, he teams up with him and goes to his old farm where another neighbor is hiding out from uh the the bank contractors mm-hmm. who were there to kind of kick everyone out named uh yuli yuli bates and, and both of these characters are played by two ford regulars and i think they're just these are probably the best performances from them from uh, john carradine as casey and john quaylen as uh muley and these early scenes with them particularly with muley are i think some of the most impactful for me in the film the most devastating to watch and some of the most beautiful in the film as well. And and I should say throughout that the film is just gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous to look at. Uh, this was shot by Greg Toland a year before he did uh, Citizen Kane. And you see him here kind of experimenting with deep focus a little bit before he really embraces it there. And it's 
better. I'm going to say it's better than Citizen King. Really, really, uh, for me, apart from like the sound stages of the farm and everything, it's the outdoor locations that Tolan's willing to play with light and naturalistic lighting. Um, he's willing to play with very, very dark scenes, which you rarely saw up till this point uh, in very meaningful ways to the point where it almost looks documentary like, but but uh, very narrative, of course, in, in all its goals. But uh, some of the shots, of course, look, you know, like they're framing real places and uh, location shooting as they're traveling down the, the road. Uh, really impressive to me and what really hooked me into it. Even shooting. even a lot of the studio stuff, like where they're obviously working on a set, still looks gorgeous. The backgrounds are, are very well done. They're integrated well. Uh, there's no like cheap rear screen projection that you can notice or anything. It's a quality production from top to bottom. But Toland's cinematography really elevates the artistry of the entire film to another plane entirely. That scene I was talking about where, where they kind of bump into John Coyland, they, they, like they come into the house and it's just like, you're watching a scene play out in complete shadow like it's yeah it's absolute darkness but you can it's it's clear enough that you can see the action still and what's happening and just the most the absolute most minimal amount of light conceivable is being utilized in in like just the very small match light they, they give off there it even gets to use it for the one scene where they can't see his face they can't tell who the guy was but you know they're looking for the big uh the big mark on his head as as they snapped him with their yeah, shovel or yeah. whatever it was it, later on in the film where they're hunting yeah, down yeah. henry fonda yeah but i guess i guess where you were at is that his family gets tractored out of uh out of their homes yeah there, there's a a short flashback sequence that gives us context of what has happened where's everyone gone from the the character perspective of muley there uh and it's, um john quaylen just gives this this terrifically like like heartfelt like wrenching performance as he talks about like you know this you know how they his family has lived and died on this land for yeah. for generations and now someone's just coming in and telling him that he can't and even when he sit goes there to like defend the land like you know he's ready to shoot whoever's going to come in with the the big tractor to take him out and it's you know it's another local it's another neighborhood you know uh member of of, of the community there and he's so desperate that he's having to work to destroy you know the his community just to help provide for his family and, and of course you know muley can't bring himself to to shoot him even though he you know <laughs> he's got to defend his own property and it's 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 a heart-wrenching you know portrait and, and i like the the sequence as well where you know he's he's trying to like argue and figure out who he's got to see to go deal with this and it's like oh you know this you know the you know these owned by the bank and but you can't go to the bank and go do them because they're just getting their orders from up above you know he's just the manager uh it's just like this kind of nebulous force that's forcing everyone off of their property here that these guys really can't deal with that's like a through line for the movie and every time corporations or large groups controlling units of workers comes up it's all about really unionizing and and you know finding the strength to uh Put the rights back in the hands of the workers and de-establish that that force of commercialism mm-hmm. oh and particularly looking towards the the government and their ability mm-hmm. to provide for the people is a, is a major aspect throughout and depending on where your stance is there politically you can see that as a positive thing or, or a negative thing but the film i is think definitely... we're very close right i think we'd probably have the same outcomes about that yeah yeah i think we're pretty pro government helping the people (laughs) right 
Yeah. So uh, the fact that the films take such a staunch position there, particularly in how it basically makes the government camp that they end up go to look like a, a fucking paradise. <laughs> it's brilliant, too. Um, there was no guarantee that there'd be that kind of prosperity there or that, uh, you know, like he, like he says, his, his mom's just not been treated well in a while. You know, there's there's so much that they're missing out on and and so much desperation. Uh, really feeling feeling movie uh, nearly got me to cry by the end uh, in that beautiful speech we'll get to but yeah there's uh i think so many brilliant touching moments throughout and it's all very very motivated <laughs> by yeah just very terrific performances from top it is. to bottom ma, ma Jode especially is such a, a a shining example of character here uh she's played by uh jane darwell and she's up to terrific. the scene where they're first looking to leave their their temporary home that they're staying at and she's going through all the stuff she's burning certain notes and memories that she can't take with her there's no room for there's a scene where she like finds the earrings and she kind of holds them up in the mirror she's kind of just in, in, enjoying this one moment of you know kind of kind of solace and uh prosperity for, just just in this very small item that she has it's this very heart-wrenching moment before she gets ready to go and, and leave their yeah. place leave the state for forever as they it's head. a lot to abandon i mean it's you're not coming back it's not like well, we're they, interconnected they, like we are yeah, now they, they ask her you know they say you know aren't you gonna look and say bye one last time she's like nope we're, we're going so let's <laughs> let's go i i do like that that po- that positive just looking forward and the movement of it all i mean the the film has such brilliant westward movement that it, it really feels like you're on this journey. It's one of right. the great road movies too. Who who else but John Ford could frame uh, a story about you know Western migration like yeah. this? The, the the like coming off the heels of Stagecoach, the the Jodes like jalopy here <laughs> is effectively another Stagecoach, and it's leading yeah, it to to a promised poster, uh, posterity or pro- prosperity. Yeah, prosperity. There we go. Thank you. Uh, that may or may not be there as we kind of learn as we go along. And the car, I think, is so much a character of the film. As anyone else, it's got this, this very unique identity to it, uh, the way it operates. There's a great sound design to it, too, throughout the way it just, like, it struggles to survive. Oh, it sounds road. like a jalopy. It, it sounds like a piece of a scrap of junk, too. It, it, it has to make frequent stops along the way just because it overheats. You know, By the way, the stops trouble. are some of my favorite parts of the movie. Um, going into that uh, that dime store, like trying to get the ten cent mm. loaf of bread instead of the fifteen cent, and um, something happened where I never learned about penny candies until, or I don't remember learning about them until this week. Where this came up in both Underground Railroad and this movie, where uh, <laughs> they go in and try to get the penny candy, and something happens, and you know, both that's that's a funny oh, parallel. Yeah, um, like the railroad all connected. Mm-hmm. but yeah so then that's a that's a great scene because again there's so many scenes like that where it's just like they're these humans these people trying to survive with like this this bare minimum yeah. they have from this you know all this the 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 little work they can find and they yeah. have to kind of haggle their way through life and, well, and... <laughs> so i went and visited my grandma last week and she told me about like their store in idaho they used to run where she had to work it and that's what their family just did forever like it was so endearing to me to see a representation of one of those shops because I read her a short story about it. Um, I kind of 
you know, a few generations removed. It's like a family story, a little bit racist about a native coming in and trying to bargain for a piece of their bread or something. So I don't know, something was really touching to me about seeing that middle America representation of where part of my family lineage kind of live that experience of having to bargain their items and try to make do off sense uh, for their, you know, for their baked goods and everything. So uh, really cool for me. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, like I said, there's there's so many scenes like that kind of throughout. You could also take, for example, the the scene at the 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 one camp where you have all the kids gathered around the pot is is Mancho just like just like heartbroken trying to yeah. you know figure out how she's gonna feed her family and all these starving kids are kind of just hanging around and, and Tom has to try and scare them off, you know. And and ultimately her her empathy kind of wins her over and she's gonna give what little scraps of food she has you know, to them because they're suffering just the same as everyone else. And this, you know, this, this struggle back and forth of like needing to provide for your immediate family and also having a desire to help lift up those in your community who are suffering just as much. Like, you know, it's a, it's a kind of depressing dilemma to be in there, but they, they try and, and pull through in so many ways in the, the in the communities all the communities that they encounter and come across they do they always pitch in and and do their part to help establish as a, like a commune there, there's productive. a scene yeah there's the scene later as well where they where he bumps into casey again yeah. after they get to the the peach farm where they're picking and casey is out there with the strikers saying you know we're we're sitting here because they're you know they're not going to pay us the the five cents they're paying you now the five cents to pick but you know, as soon as we leave, they're, they're going to go away and, you know, then you're going to be in trouble. So you guys got to join us and, and help us out here and, you know, refuse to work. And, and Tom's like, yeah, I mean, that would be great, but I ain't going to be able to convince anyone, you know, to stop. They're getting paid five cents right now and they right. need it, you know? So even if it's better for everyone, you know, if we stand up to these, you know, guys and, and, and force them to give the proper pay, nobody's going to want to do that because they're getting, there's at least for right now which is all they can live for yeah it shows us how capitalist systems force us into this kind of labor so so that we could even live um without yeah. thinking about and, what, what our workers rights should really be and and the treatment there when they get there where they're being yeah. kind of just like looked over and disregarded and chucked into these these shitty living locations for poverty wages like that and they just got to put up with it and there's no respect and it's it's terrible to watch and it just compounds all of the you know desolation they're they're experiencing this whole way I, f- I feel like there's there's so much to say but also a lot of it is you know like complimentary in the broader sense of it i could go mm-hmm. into like more specific details like just seeing like like small things like i recall throughout like at certain camps there's like there's there's some of the cars are listed like for sale it's the yeah. only means of transport but they have to sell them you know and, and it's just like a, a small detail you see like when they're kind of riding through or like the implementation of uh carefully considered close-ups throughout the film and like these big emotional powerhouse moments they, they cut to them at just the right time well i i always like the idea that we generally think in america that once we had the automobile everything was modernized suddenly uh, we think everyone lived like within a city by the time we had automobiles and that we were all connected enough to get around. But then the idea of these kids, like for the first time in their life, seeing like urinals and like how a toilet flushes and all that, I, I find that really amusing because it reminds us, you know, um, how slow development is and how centralized it becomes to like these hubs of of places and how half of America didn't get that stuff till much later. 
Right. And that's that's when they come up to the, the government camp, which right. kind of just pops up like an oasis in the in the desert after their car breaks down and they it have seems to, unbelievable like, to them right like it seems like a trap of, of a kind they're like wondering about the police and yeah well because they've they've been to two previous camps prior to that and they've been they've had to leave both of them for uh you know unsavory reasons um you know one of them being the one where where tom <laughs> got into a fight and casey gets uh you know killed i have to say also Better messaging about the police than Spiral uh, Book of Saw. <laughs> this fits much better into our modern it's, conversation it's, it's, than Spiral. It's, it's definitely an uh, ACAB movie for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, once they're clear that there's no police and that it's just, you know, people that are just, you know, part of the group that are, you know, looking over everything. That makes a lot more sense as a, yeah, as and a it's, structure. It's a, it's a community driven place. They they get to establish their own rules. It's, you know, kind of like a, a democracy. Uh, democratically led um you know they have all these amenities and everything the government is is backing it which really is is indicative of how things were changing at the time there's a specific choice in the in the casting there as well to reflect that the uh the guy who runs the the government can't uh grant mitchell he was specifically cast and kind of made up to look like fdr yeah would you, would you get a sense of because he represents the prosperity right. being brought to the the nation through this overhaul of government programs, just just like huge deluge of them being put out there to bring the economy and and the the country out of the depression, getting everyone you know more you know financially stabilizing the banks uh, and everything going on there, uh, you know as opposed to what was going on with the previous administration, which was basically just ignoring the destitution around them <laughs> and i read reread through your piece on it really great piece you could just put grapes of the wrath in the in the search bar there on the twingeeks.com and you'll find it i did uh, i in a so in a fit of politicized <laughs> frustration last year i wrote a piece kind of comparing the uh discussion of of modern films being like too politicized with right. uh older films which are very concerned with with politics in this case and uh, i paralleled a lot of the struggles in grapes of wrath with those that were kind of going on at the time particularly kind of like juxtaposing the uh the dust bowl and the de dealing with that crisis with what was going on with hurricane maria uh which this was like before the, the pandemic hit right <laughs> But the, yeah. now there's something like in the water where it's like, oh, something's political. Maybe I want to stay away. But uh, movies have always been political. Yeah. And particularly one like this. And again, like big films. This was a big film for the time and a very lauded film. Maybe like from the 90s to right now, the blockbusters stopped being, you know, they became kind of apolitical for a while. But, but yeah, also, there was there was nothing political also fascist, Schindler's List. So, uh, that one's not fascist. Um, <laughs> the others are fascist. Mm -hmm. but yeah so this uh, i was just i was very motivated to write about it uh there, there's some aspects like i think uh th throwing around the world word socialism nowadays is still a little yeah. tough hard and, and it's not to say that there aren't socialist themes in uh groups of wrath but i i think to say so kind of just like a blanket you know address is maybe a bit of a disservice um i, I think it's like 
like a recommendation. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but me, like when I, we, when we, when we talk about like like when I talk about it and I kind of just say that kind of singularly in comparison with the FDR administration. Yeah. It, it could be more nuanced. I think re- reading back over is is the only thing I'll say. But re- I did read it this morning again, and I'm still a, very proud of the piece, very happy with with how it came out, and the the message is pushing forward there. Um, so yeah, I, I'd recommend it, and I appreciate you doing the same there. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading back over it, and I'm I'm very proud that we have works like that that are features that are going into something bigger than just the movies and how they connect with our histories of politics and everything. Mm-hmm. And, and it's still a very, like I said, it's an important and enduring piece of Americana. And I think the piece reflects that greatly. Uh, and it's still a film that touches me and, and magnetizes me, I think is, is kind of the big thing here. And my appreciation of it only grows and grows with uh, rewatch. You, you know, I, I was pretty st- worried about it, honestly, uh, especially after your Fargo take. I just wanted to come in here and do like a barnstorming uh, hate watch of John Ford or something to get back at you. But I, I, but I ended up loving it so much I couldn't I couldn't put it aside. Well, I'm glad I'm glad that's the case because I was afraid you were going to try and revenge <laughs> me by by shitting on the groups of wrath. There's always but, Oxbow incident. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to say, you know how there are some films that people always say, you know, oh, if it's on TV, I you know I just have to sit down and stop everything and watch it. Oh yeah. Uh, the only time I've actually done that was with the grapes of wrath I oh really say. yeah uh and and it was kind of when the film first really like burrowed its way into my mind because i'd seen it once before but i was on vacation in seaside a couple of years ago and we were relaxing around after like a day at the beach or whatever and uh the the hotel just happened to have tcm you know which is which is great and the grapes of wrath was on and it was like 20 minutes into the movie or whatever you know and they just, you know, like whoever was with, they just had it on the background. And I was sitting on the couch, not really doing anything. But, you know, I was, I was kind of watching the movie intermittently. And then, I, you know, I was just really sucked into it and, and kind of stopped doing anything else and just watched the rest of it completely. And it was just really taken, you know, because every, every scene, I think, just pulls you further and further into it. It's, it's so exceedingly well told as a story. The characters are all so uh, terrifically sketched, and the the message just really like 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 resonates and feels powerful. And particularly by the time you're getting to the ending, you know, and and the while you still have that oh, like overwhelming weight of you know uh, depression, you know, coming with the film, you also have that you know shining light of optimism that is kind of resonating throughout the whole film that, that Ford is really pulling you through. And the movie comes out with that, that more kind of ideal sense of the future uh, as opposed to the, the book, which I know is kind of structured to be more reflective of the, the time it was written and the state of things still yeah. didn't seem like things were necessarily going to get better. It still wasn't promised that things would, you know, I mean, there's what happens in the book and then there's what, you know, what happens later in California. We know about the gold rush and all the wealth of opportunity that came afterwards just historically. But of course, reading it at that time, you might not have, uh... should I get to the ending of the book now? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, one of the big things I know is that the the order of the camps is shifted around in this. That's right. Like, so in, in the book, it's like bad private camp, then you get the government camp, then they have to leave and they have another bad camp. And it's kind of just, you know, so... By putting it at the end, the, the government camp, it does 
kind of come as this more prosperous, you know, idealized setting where they can kind of survive for a while. And there's a, a, a string of hope that kind of carries them through. By the end, it feels like that restructuring does a lot for the movie and makes it a more significant and impactful work than the book for me. But uh, Steinbeck also has his one trick that he pulls at the end, which is a woman loses her child at stillborn. And uh, she's laying uh, in a barn with the with a guy who's just destitute and homeless and uh, hasn't eaten or anything. But she still has the milk from her breast, so she offers her breast to feed it to him. And then she has like a weird mysterious smile on and you don't really know what that's about. But but it's about like finding op- optimism while even outside it's like pouring rain. And there's, you know, there's like this feeling of growth, but also like the crops are unusable. But but then there's this birth and life happening while there's also a stillborn, like a lot of confused images there of like pregnancy and like a, a virginal idea. And then a, a woman with her breast that definitely would not have made the movie under any circumstances at this time back then there's no way that they could have possibly got the the woman's breast in a guy's mouth the 10 year movie could you imagine even today i don't know that (laughs) people would be able to take that very well especially with the stillborn baby and not having any resolution the resolution is that the woman gives herself to a man after she loses her baby i don't think we'd accept that right now yeah definitely a different kind of sentiment uh yeah. Do you, do you know if the speech is still a component of the? the book? I don't. I don't remember, sir. Because that's that's kind of the big thing that Grapes of Wrath is uh, remembered for is is Henry Fonda's kind of big speech towards the end, where he's about to to run off because he's causing the family too much burden now, and he's. I I didn't remember it, but it could very well be in the books. <laughs> it's been yeah. many years, well, and it's a well, big book. One well, idea is now that he's on the run, more or less, uh, mm-hmm. is that he's he's resolved to become kind of like a. a a fighter for the issues of, of these people, you know, uh, you know, he says whenever, you know, whether there's a cop beating up a, you know, guy, uh, I'll be there, you know, in, in, in a spiritual kind of sense, but also in a literal way and that he's going to more or less wander the, the country, you know, fighting for the people, which is, again, it's a, it's a sentiment of, of hope and uh you know like prosperity for the future a sense that he's you know giving himself over to a greater cause and uh representing the ideals that he's been you know going for the the entire time in in the film here because he he does stand up to you know the the authorities throughout the film there's there's that great scene as well in the camp where he does get busted where yeah the cops are like pressuring these guys into you know uh, uh, they're trying to arrest this guy on on some kind of false charges, and uh, uh, when he starts running off, you know they go to to sh- to shoot at him, and he and the cop like sh- shoots a fucking woman, right? And and she's dying in her blood, and they're kind of very indifferent to it. Uh, and it's just like it's a, it's a very like like tragic scene, very like like devastating and unexpected. One of the more memorable parts of the film, I think, as well for sure. I think just that brilliant speechifying at the end really struck me and gave me something to really hold on to about the movie that uh, whether or not it was in the book, it's not what I walked away from the book with. Um, and that's why I take away from the movie is this brilliant speech. I, I do think it's interesting that the book is something you have a lot of criticism for and not something you remember. Very fondly, I'm indifferent. But, it was yeah. an assignment for school and all of my best reading was something I did on my own, honestly. 
I, right. I hated my assigned books. So. I, well, I think that's the case with everyone. I, yeah. Although I do remember enjoying, uh, I, I remember of Mice and Men and To Kill a Mockingbird. I enjoyed, but well, I know uh, it's weird because my mom was going through like African literature program at like Ohio State, and so I did all that reading with her, and I was like, I was way ahead of this high school stuff by the time because I had already done all this in middle school. Like I had gone through all the African American classics, and I had read all the books from you know like Richard Wright and all you know these incredible authors, and then they're like yeah here uh just read this uh, steinbeck novel mice and man i'm like oh fuck off <laughs> you know i'm like I, i've already gone where i want to go but uh once we got to like hurston again and and authors i really love i i you know a lot of black literature is what i was really raised on and then of course like the hemingways and twains and and that stuff but steinbeck was always like an aside to me that was just assigned just for school and mm-hmm. i was never connected to steinbeck as a figure of literature well, it's it's great to see that the film at least resonated with you, and that Ford brought out the best of that which he he provided in, in *Grapes of Wrath*. And I think it does still stand as a pillar of uh, Americana, both uh, novelistically, from my understanding, as well as this film. Uh, oh, yeah. I, think you, I think you could argue it as as being Ford's best if you really wanted to. And the fact that it's no, nah, I won't. I, but I, you I, could. I'm I'm saying you could. Uh, you could argue it. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't, but 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 there's there's a lot that that you could as well like that could go toe to toe here with Ford because he has such a uh, intense filmography, but particularly because of, of the material he's working with and the collaboration with Greg Toland at the height of his artistic you know, prowess as well, and Henry Fonda delivering what might be his best performance of his career, and all the other brilliant character actors who bring dimension to the story. I think it's just it's it's an absolute masterwork of you know uh american fiction here absolutely um very excited that you brought it to me and that i'm filling out this uh, afi list very quickly yeah. i think i have four or five left of, of afi I, I would, to watch i would say you brought it to me in this case more so in this you case wanted to, you wanted to finally get to it and i said hell yeah hell yeah i'll talk about the grapes of wrath i think it's a brilliant fucking film only a few left of AFI, and this does rank high on on their list of like canonized movies of ones I think absolutely has to be on any canonized list because of its social value and themes. How does it fare against the birth of a nation? <laughs> that movie that I couldn't get through. Well, uh, I, I mean, I'll take Greg Toland over anything, right? It's it's great. <laughs> so if Greg Toland shot Birth of a Nation, you'd be more on board. Oh God. I don't think I could be on board. Let's say that. It's good to know. It's good to know. Uh, Some things are just fucking hard to watch. I know they're historically like useful and they're like part of a history of film, but I fucking can't. I I can't. It sucks. It's it sucks that the uh, American film is like you know built built in with these racist obelisks that you have to deal with, like. Uh, it's it's also not fun necessarily watching Al Jolson like croon in blackface, but you know I I did it, uh, and it, it it's important in some ways. But I also don't envy you for deciding to go through Birth of a Nation. I think I got there, halfway and I, rated it, so everyone just thought I had watched I, it and I, never did it to me. Yeah, it'd probably be easier if it was like a ninety-minute shit fest. It I would imagine. be, yeah. It would be nice. Like if the, three the fact minutes. that it's like in excess of three hours is. <laughs> I would say that's more discouraging than yeah. than the actual like harder to swallow stuff about it, just because like oh, yeah. a, because of both of them, not because three hour movies are inherently bad. No, I mean I'm watching a <laughs> ten hour Barry Jenkins movie right now, so also about slavery. 
Yeah. Like, but they're not grotesque. Like the only grotesque yeah. in that movie are the white people, which is like the complete inverse of like gone with the wind shit. And like that old minstrel period of Hollywood, like the black people aren't grotesque anymore. It's the white people that are. So I could accept that kind of narrative rewriting. Well, it's not, it's not narrative rewriting. Cause well, the white people were grotesque. No, no, no. I mean like of the cinematic history, not like a, not reality. Of course that's, that matches. Yeah, well, uh, well, that's, that's why. That's why something like Birth of a Nation is so grotesque. But anyway, yeah, yeah. this doesn't have anything to do with John Ford or um, the Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> um, but but it does. I think it's more. I think it has more social value than a lot of stuff that came from that time. That, that's uh, lasting I, and, and more than many films from that period. Again, like it's it's a very politically motivated considered film reflective of of the time but also of mm-hmm. america in general it's very rooted in you know those themes like i like i said resonate far beyond its you know 80 years uh you know timeline there i think it's going to be an eternal film because of that i hope it will be i don't see any reason that it won't continue to be ageless and, and eternal in our especially as long as there's america i think it could be useful it'll, it'll so maybe like going. five more years yep. right We'll keep going and going because we're the people. <laughs> Until we're not. Yeah, but I'm, I'm very glad that you got to it and watched it. And I'm um, looking forward to next week as well because we're doing a, a Henry Fonda double feature with uh, the Oxbow Incident, which is another Western for us. Another one you haven't seen. Time for me to get back from my Fargo. <laughs> yeah, we'll see if you like it. Um, it does have some court scenes elements it's it's not there's no courtrooms it's not a courtroom i feel like the whole thing sounds like a court procedure no it's it's no it's it's kind of procedural but there's nothing (laughs) courty about it the justice system it's 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 the justice of the west oh god i need to go through and count how many movies about justice you've you've had me watch now (laughs) it's well it's a it's a fixation of of the human race i think justice so it's a it's a prevalent theme of many movies there's there's justice and grapes of wrath you like that yeah i did yeah discussion of that the, the the dichotomy of that anyway that's for next week though we'll talk about that next week and Thanks maybe everyone. maybe we might launch a new podcast soon we'll see you can cut that out if you're not ready to do it yet <laughs> question mark question mark it'll be All announced right. soon so Okay. Thanks everyone for tuning in this week. Make sure as always to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well at the twin geeks and individually at Calvin Kemp and at David a punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, the daydream cast with Pavlos and Brogan available on Apple podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. There's a cop beating a gun Wherever a hungry and bone baby cries There's a fight against the blood and hatred in the air Look for me, mom, I'll be there There's somebody fighting for a place to stay A decent job or a hippie Somebody struggling to be free Look in the eyes, mom, you'll see me The highway is alive tonight Nobody's kidding nobody about me